0: Welcome to Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan.
1: And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs.
0: We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support.
1: You're listening to There's Your Trouble, a chart-topping single by the Dixie Chicks that was co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Tia Sillers. The Grammy-winning songwriter behind such additional hits as Leanne Womack's I Hope You Dance and Alan Jackson's That'd Be Alright will join us later in the show to talk about her heartbreaking personal losses, her professional triumphs, and how they've all worked together to make her the person and songwriter she is today. Part One Well, here we are getting into another Christmas season. I feel like I've known you for like a hundred Christmases now. Something like that. What did you get me? Um... I don't want to ruin the surprise yet. I want to wait till you know, the I day. forgot that about you. Yeah, yeah, You're coy with your gifts, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, the, the, one of the hallmarks of, no pun intended, but one of the hallmarks of the Christmas season is these songs that you hear year in and year out, right? right? Yeah. And I got to say, you know, a lot of great songs in the, in the Christmas canon. Right. But there are a few that I never need to hear again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i will go ahead right. and say
0: the little drummer boy. Yeah, I remember. never needed to hear that the first time. Yeah, totally. Although I will say the Ray Charles version of that song is awesome. It's pretty great, but the Ray Charles version of any song is kind of awesome. So. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Um, and it got me thinking about songs, you know, just in the broader, like, you know, pop or rock world. Right. That even though they're great songs, and I can say for sure, this is a great song. It's an awesome song. Maybe I even loved it at one time. Right. But there's some of them that I'm at the point now where I'm like, Man, I don't ever need to hear that song again. I've heard it <laughs> right. on my own records or on the radio enough times. Yeah. And, you know, I can die. <laughs> right. So So uh, I told you ahead of time I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. I put yeah. a few together myself. Uh-huh. I, um, I gave it some thought. Yeah. But I don't know what your answers are and you don't know mine. So uh, I'm sure we'll have some overlap. But these are songs that I never, ever need to hear again. But songs, songs.
1: Songs you think are good. I think they're great
0: songs. Okay, I yeah. love them. I'd I'd fight anybody that said otherwise. Right. But I'd also fight you if you tried to make me sit and listen to the whole thing. Right. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and start with Sweet Home Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Yeah, I hear that. I I love Leonard Skynyrd. Right. You know, the opening riff to that song, you know, is so evocative. Right. It's meaningful just by itself. Right. But I've never made it to the closing seconds (laughs) of that song in in the last decade.
1: Well, I hear that. Uh one of mine is actually Freebird. Oh, um, well, that's that song is so long. That, yeah, it's more about time than it yeah, is about anything People that else. love it probably haven't yeah. made it to the end of it. But. Yeah, so, um, so yeah. So the, I've, I've revealed Freebird is one of mine, but I'll go ahead and, and I'm going to come out of the gate with, it. I'm going to just go right for the controversy. I'm not going to, you know, right. like try to dodge this because I know this is one of your favorite artists. And I, I really think this is a great song, but... If I never hear your song by Elton John again, it'll be too soon. Well, uh, you know what? I don't know how many times I need to hear that
0: one again. I mean, I, I, I'm right. not ready to say that I'm done with it. Right. But after hearing you and McGregor just like every man that song, <laughs> I, I don't know that I need to hear it again. Like, right. Yeah. You know. So I'm, yeah, I understand that. You can appreciate it. Okay. It's also got a bad flute note at the end of it. I'd like anyone to listen to the very end of your song. And there's... There's a bad flute note. Huh. That's that was left in there. That I might know. get me to hear it again. Just I don't to know check why there's out. a flute in there anyway. <laughs> um, I love Boston. Uh-huh. they're like the the working man's you know great like bar jukebox right. band. But dude, I don't ever need to hear more than a feeling again. <laughs> I feel like yeah. I know every inch and every riff and every note every of every nook song. and cranny has yep. been explored for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. All right. Well, since I did one of your favorite artists, I'm going to do one of my favorite artists. Right. Uh, Steve Earle is, has been a huge influence on me. I have huge respect for Steve Earle. Uh, at this point, I hate Copperhead Road. <laughs> uh, it's again, it's longer than it needs to be. It's a it's a very good song. Yeah. Like you say, if somebody was like that song sucks, no, it doesn't. It right. doesn't suck. Right. Um, but yeah, I never need to, I don't need to hear that song. I mean, it's ever certainly again. his hit, I guess yeah, you say, Yeah, it's his, right? it's his hit. And, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't mind if I never hear it again.
0: Well, this one's going to anger, like, everyone who's ever watched, like, one of those vocal competition shows, because this song keeps showing up. And it's, it's a fantastic song. I might put it down as one of the greatest songs ever written. Yeah. But if I never hear Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah again, (laughs) I'll be just fine. Like, Jeff Buckley's version was transcendent and beautiful, and I I would argue that it was a a watershed moment for me as a listener and writer and whatever. Yeah. But, oh, my gosh, if I have to hear that again. I heard there was a secret code
1: click. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. All right, well, I'm going to go controversial again. I'm going to go for yet another one of your favorite artists. Mm Mm-hmm. Perhaps one of the most internationally beloved artists of all time. Probably one of the most successful songs of all time. I don't care for Thriller.
0: Thriller is sitting on my list right here.
1: <laughs> really? Yes. I'm surprised. We
0: overlap with well, Thriller.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, Michael Jackson, great. I mean, I remember when that video came out, they played it every hour on MTV. Yeah. I, I remember recording it with the VHS uh, tape so that I could, yep. I guess I needed to see it more than every hour. Right. Um. You know, I, Great groove, but yeah, you know, it's well put together. It's interesting. It's not your typical song. It's about right. something, you know. On paper, great song, but uh, yeah, man, it's just.
0: Well, I, I'm going to surprise you even more by telling you that I was sitting here trying to pick between Thriller, Billy Jean, or Beat It. Really? Yep. Well, like, if I'm going to Thriller, I'm going to Baby Be Mine, right? Or Lady in My Life, or PyT, Because right. I think that album is just tattooed into my spine. <laughs> right. And Thriller didn't do itself any favors uh, by having the exact same bass line all the way through hmm. and the exact same chord changes over the top. Right. It never changes. Hmm. Yeah. So once you've listened to it 10 times, you've technically listened to it 50 times. You know?
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, now, I got to say, I- I'm kind of with you on Beat It as well, but Billie Jean, I've still got some Billie Jean in the tank. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. I mean, it's not all
0: right. These are fantastic, <laughs> amazing songs. Right, right. You know? Yeah, but I don't need to hear them again. um Okay, I'm I'm gonna pick one of my favorite bands here, and and I would say everybody's favorite band. You too. Mm. I don't need to hear one again. Okay. You know, like okay. when I go to a show, if I start to hear the opening lick to one, that that's my pee break. <laughs> um, yeah, probably because I know that they're going to talk for
1: a long time when they start that song (laughs) about something right um yeah i'm just kind of just kind of done with it yeah i'm okay with one i'm not i'm not i'm not totally over it um i'll tell you what i am over uh and i know that it's questionable to ever choose a beatles song (laughs) (laughs) first of all i'll say that birthday by the beatles i never liked it it's not a good song (laughs) all right so i got got that on my system uh but hey jude which is a good song Okay I just I don't need to hear it again Once they started The Na Na Na's It's like I was like, about to uh, say what if, what if there was an edit Without the Na Na's Would you be alright I'd be more receptive to that But uh, I think it's just Something about that It's again Maybe my attention span Is just getting shorter But I, I just uh, I'm not I'm not ready to sign up For Hey Jude Any time at all <laughs> In the future Alright I, I think
0: I think we should You know We could do this all day But I think we right. should do five And maybe an honorable mention Okay How many okay. have we done uh, We've done four Okay Uh, so I'm going to give you my, my fifth one. And I, I love Pink Floyd and I particularly love Dark Side of the Moon. I've listened to that album a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times. Um, and I know so has every other random dude with a garage, but when I get to money, I hit skip. Hmm. I'm done with money. Uh, the song, uh, (laughs) never started on the actual, and I actually was kind of going back and forth between money or another brick in the wall. Like, right. Both of those, I, I'm a much bigger David Gilmour fan than I am a Roger Waters fan in terms right. of, you know, what types of songs they are. and Yeah. So money, for whatever reason, it's just kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of bored with it. If I hear it come on the hmm. radio, ching, ching, even before the bass line comes in, I'm like, oh, yeah. thank you for letting me know. It's time to change. <laughs>
1: yeah. I hear that. Um, so here's a, an unusual one in that this is an artist I actively dislike. Okay. What? It's not part of the criteria of the, of the game. I know, but, uh, you know, we're talking about songs that we think are great songs. We don't okay. want to hear them again. Here's an artist I actively dislike, Billy Joel. <laughs> what, what does However, it take to actively dislike <laughs> Billy Joel? Do you have to go to his house and heckle him? <laughs> I just actively, uh, no, I don't. I wish no ill will on the man. I just, uh, <laughs> you know, some artists you're just like, meh. With him, I'm like, yeah, eh. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. And... However, I will say that Billy Joel ha- there are exceptions. Like She's Always a Woman I think is great is song. a great song. Like he's got some great ballads. Right. When he tries to rock it really upsets me. But <laughs> one of his songs that I will say is probably one of the great songs of the pop rock era. Um is it Piano Man? Is Piano Man <laughs> That's a great as a great song. It's a great song. I don't need to hear it ever again. Yeah. I'm probably with you. Yeah. I'm yeah. probably with you on that one. So.
0: That you, you and I could take a pretty pleasant road trip, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, I think we'd agree on the music. Uh, so is that, is that our, is that it? As well, I've, I've we, got an honorable mention. Okay, and then I'll do an honorable mention.
0: Uh, Led Zeppelin, Rock and Roll. <laughs> okay. Um, before it was a Cadillac commercial, it began to feel like a Cadillac commercial to me. Interesting. Uh, man, I feel like, I hope I hope I don't have friends listening to this. Um <laughs> I just I, I think I don't like songs about rock and roll. Oh, I think yeah. that's got something to do with it. I, and again, I I I mean it's like the vocals insane, the riff is great, like it's like blistering awesome, you know, fast rock and led zeppelin. Um but I just feel like it's just kind of at the end of the DJ's playlist. You know, I can't think of what else to play
1: Let's just pull out rock and roll We've talked before about not liking songs about rock and roll Or songs about dancing Or Or food Songs about about food I don't like
0: songs about food
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so my honorable mention Is a song that I will Award one of the most Beautiful melodies ever written In the Pop music era We didn't start the fire (laughs) (laughs) Lists are not songs Um, so one of the, (laughs) one of the most beautiful melodies written in the pop era for a song that I never want to hear again is Imagine by John Lennon. Dude, that was on, that was one of my two. (laughs) I I almost went for that one. Well, glad to know we're pretty well aligned on what we don't want to ever hear again.
0: (laughs) Uh, Covers of Imagine? Okay. Or just any version of
1: Imagine? I'm done with it. I'm done. I've gotten, I've gotten all the juice out of that lemon.
0: (laughs) Imagine never hearing that song again.
1: (laughs) Part two. So, before we jump into this interview with Tia Sillers, um, we actually want to let people know about a giveaway that is i think kind of a, a special giveaway for mm-hmm. us here uh, at songcraft and that is a cd by mark otis selby and if you're not already familiar with mark selby you'll be hearing a lot about him in this interview he is uh tia's late husband yeah. and uh, songwriting collaborator they actually wrote there's your trouble and a whole bunch of songs together blue on black and and some other stuff that that you'll be hearing about but um Tia and and Mark have an incredible love story and, you know, incredible collaborators, uh, obviously, in in life and in music. And um, clearly his... Uh, his passing was a great loss to, to the music world and and obviously something that has impacted her life very much. And, and one of the things that Tia has been doing is promoting this um, album uh, that, that Mark put out called The Naked Sessions, and it's stripped down versions of uh, some of the highlights from his song catalog. And it's really an intimate look at a guy um, capturing some of his best music work um, at a time when he knows that you know, that he is ill and, and that this is his kind of swan song, his, his final musical statement. And so for that reason, it's, this is a really special project and, and Tia is, uh, singing with him on, on this, uh, record, but really spotlights, um, Mark as, as an artist and a songwriter and, and it's very cool. So you'll be hearing more about this, uh, project during the, um, during the interview, but we want to give away this CD to one of our listeners. So, if you're interested in having your very own copy of the Mark Otis Selby Naked Sessions CD, send us an email to songcraft at songcraftshow.com, and in the subject line, just say uh, Mark Selby, that's S-E-L-B-Y.
0: And we will announce the
1: winner on our next episode in two weeks, so stay tuned for that. Part 3. Though best known as the co-writer of Leanne Womack's classic I Hope You Dance, Tia Sillers has written successful singles in various genres, establishing herself as one of Nashville's great songwriters. After scoring with top 10 singles by George Dukas and Pam Tillis, she first hit the top of the country charts with the Dixie Chicks recording of There's Your Trouble. Additional charting country singles followed by artists such as Susie Boggus, Pin Monkey, Tammy Cochran, Tricia Yearwood, and Alan Jackson, who scored a huge hit with That'd Be Alright. In addition to her country success, Tia has landed several songs on Billboard's hot mainstream rock chart, including Kenny Wayne Shepherd's Blue on Black, which spent a total of six weeks in the number one slot. She also found success in Christian music when she and Hall of Fame songwriter Bill Anderson won the Dove Award for Country Song of the Year after the Oak Ridge Boys recorded their song Jonah, Job, and Moses. Other artists who've covered Tia's songs include Martina McBride, Randy Travis, Trace Adkins, Diamond Rio, John Waite, Vince Gill, Wynonna, Patti Page, Jennifer Lopez, and Gladys Knight. She has won Song of the Year honors from the Grammys, the CMA, the ACM, NSAI, and BMI. Tia has additionally taken home awards from the Canadian Country Music Association and the Billboard Music Awards. Tia, welcome to Songcraft.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you here.
0: I understand that you were born in Connecticut. <laughs>
2: um. Yeah. That's already so tricky. Go on. Go on.
0: I didn't realize we'd had the gotcha question right there in the beginning. Right. Born yeah. in
2: Connecticut. Yeah. No, yeah. Born here's in Connecticut. I'm so tired of saying this but I'm so gonna say it on the record for the ninetieth time. My fam my mother and father lived in New York City on West Ninety Sixth. My mom decided to go to a Marlena Dietrich show <laughs> in Can- I mean in Connecticut and she went into labor and had me there and wow. hence I'm from freaking Connecticut. <laughs> so and I have i no- I've never even been to the state.
0: So, so by all intents and purposes, you should be from New York.
2: I should, except that's even tricky too. So yeah, so I, I, but my birth certificate says Danbury, Connecticut, and so.
0: You almost said Canada. Think yeah, I tricky. did. That I know, was, that would really
2: be confusing. I know. Yeah. You, 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 I feel more at home in Canada. Be introducing
0: you as Canadian writer. Exactly. <laughs> um, you ended up in Nashville with your family while you were still a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about what role music played in your early life, what you were hearing, and and then how you first got into songwriting before it became your profession
2: well you know one of the things I think is um so interesting about my family moved to Nashville we moved um to a condo in Green Hills which turned out to be only about three blocks from the Bluebird Cafe Hmm. and I had a bicycle and I'd be biking all around I was trying to figure out the city and everything like that and and I wasn't allowed my parents would not let me cross the other side of Hillsborough I could only stay on the condo side of Hillsboro, which was the bluebird and the mcdonald's and and the bradford's showroom and i'm trying to think of what else was there. Uh, there was the, a, the bomar house it was a Shoney. Yeah. yeah i mean we were all <laughs> the like gas the, station yeah, yeah the gas station that was that was my side <laughs> yeah and so there was a back alley where the bluebird was or a black parking lot and i would watch people i knew it was a working kitchen i was like well that's interesting what what are they're doing back there and one day i just parked my bicycle and just walked into the kitchen i'm like hmm. 15 years old and for some reason I thought it was okay to walk into a kitchen but I did and then they were like hi little girl what are you doing I'm like well I'm just biking around hi you know (laughs) and then they said "Some somebody said we have six o'clock shows here that are open to the public I was like "Huh. okay that's interesting and so then I went home and I guess I went in my head and that I could, wow, I could go to a concert all by myself on my bicycle. <laughs> and that's really what started it. I started going once or twice a week and I would just sit in the back row at the Blue Bird and it was always a free show. And I would always walk in through the kitchen wow. and they would let me do it. And, um, and the rest is kind of history. Then I saw, I met Don Schlitz and Alan Shamblin. And this was back when Alan Chamblin was a brand new young buck that Don was trying to help and break. And I got completely enamored with them. And then I ended up I mean, I I went to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And um, primarily because I wanted to go to Duke because that's where Don Schlitz went. But Ah. I didn't get into Duke. I got into Chapel Hill. And then, um, but I I went there because I'm trying to emulate Don Schlitz, which showed you already the impression that these men had on me. And I realized the biggest thing is people always ask, did I want to be a songwriter? I go, no, it did not occur to me I wanted to be a songwriter. All I wanted to do was... Be able to sit in the round with three other men. I never envisioned women at all. It was only men <laughs> in in a round at the Bluebird and tell s- stories and jokes. I, the song part didn't quite register yet. <laughs> well, it was the the in between banter. Right. I was so amazed at the, the incredible <laughs> right. witness. And then the song. Then I started as the time went on. I went, oh, but I'd have to write songs to be to able get to in sit that circle. In the circle, <laughs> and I think that's what. Yeah.
0: It's funny, uh, like about two strip malls over, there's like a pipe store.
2: Yes. Do you remember that place?
0: Just think of how differently your life would have turned out if you'd wandered in there into the like, pipe
2: store at, be you so know close, all so close. i want
0: to do is be a part of this pipe culture exactly right. and i'm going to go to the, the college that the the pipe luthier went exactly. to. exactly
2: you know? i'm gonna get a job a at pipe...
1: levy's men's Shop. Yes.
2: exactly levy's. <laughs> oh wow i haven't thought of that now it's men's <laughs> or, or the
0: donut den like yeah, the it donut could have yeah. gone, gone so yeah.
2: differently or chinatown it could be the chinese or hesse
1: gymnasium over there So many things. We're going deep down the rabbit hole of Green Hills uh, geography uh, now. Nashville, Tennessee. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I used to walk through that McDonald's parking lot. I was allowed to cross the street to go to my guitar lesson at Green Hills Music across from McDonald's. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where
2: the HG Shopping Hill Center was. Same side of the street as
1: HG Hills. Wow. Yeah. Rest in peace, HG Hills. I would say
0: there was one of the premier Shonies in Nashville right there. That was a nice well. Shonies. Yeah, that was, that a, was fancy a great one. Shonies.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, something that we like to do on the show is kind of tell the story of a songwriter's journey and career through the lens of of specific songs. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, we've we've put together a little uh, theme here for the show today, which I have I have dubbed Tia in 10. Okay. So we're going to talk about 10 of your songs, Okay. which we can talk about more than 10 of your songs, okay. but we're going to use these I'll 10 songs ten. as kind of a... Uh, a lens through which yeah. to, to look at your story. Um, and we're going to start with uh, Lipstick Promises, which yeah. uh, became a top 10 hit for George Ducas in yeah. 1995. And, and that's a song you wrote with the artist. Um, Is the first time we see your name as a writer on the Billboard charts. Everything.
2: I was going to summer school at Vanderbilt, and this super, super handsome, young, charismatic guy was in my class, and his name was George Dukas, and he had, he would literally leave the class, and there would be 20 gorgeous, nubile Vanderbilt co-eds waiting for him, you know, just going, (laughs) like that, and he was from Texas, and he wore a baseball hat or a cowboy hat on the Vanderbilt campus, and he walked, he strutted, everything like that, and... (laughs) He wasn't really studying very much in class because he was gorgeous and he had a plan. He was here to be a country music star. And I was taking notes and in class and he came up to me halfway through the class one summer and said, can I buy your notes off of you? And I said, no, I I don't do that, you know. And then he then he sort of shrugged me off like I was being rude. And then he goes, you should come down and check me out. I'm playing at Amy's tomorrow night, you know. So I was like, OK. And so I do. I go down to Amy's and I'm secretly writing at this point. And I watched this incredibly sexy, gorgeous, hunky guy go up on stage and just crush it. Mm. Wow. 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 He was great. But his songs weren't that good. (laughs) And so the next day at class, I don't know what possessed me. I said, you can have my notes if you let me fix your songs.
0: Wow.
2: (laughs) And neither one of it. He needed my notes. I think he thought I wasn't really going to fix his songs, but he needed my notes more than my songs. And the rest is history. It it, it fostered, we began writing that summer, and then we wrote all that fall. And then when I was away, I went back to UNC, Chapel Hill to College, and I went back and he got a record deal. And so he then gets a record deal and a publishing deal. And, you know, the wheels turn slow, but, but two years later, um, he's got he's making the record and the singles are you know singles are being written and we wrote that's when we wrote lipstick promises but it's all because i he needed my notes wow. and i went to a show and i had the But i mean i hmm. i had maybe written 20 songs at that point i mean i did not deserve to be that did not need to happen like that but that's how it <laughs> happened
1: wow that's great that's, that's a great amazing. Story.
0: Um, you know after that success with Lipstick Promises you had a couple of lower charters in 1995 mm-hmm. and 1996 with Cuts by Helen Darling and Kim Ritchie but it wasn't until 1997 that you had another big hit with Land of the Living uh, yes. which Pam Tillis turned into a top 5 single It's a song that you co-wrote with Waylon Patton. And I'd like to get your thoughts on on writing alone versus writing with others. And co-writing is is so Mm -hmm. common in Nashville. Mm -hmm. But how did you and do you kind of go about the process of navigating, okay, who's right for me to write with? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, there's some people you kind of want to write with because of their connections or where they're at or what they've done. Mm -hmm. But then also finding those people that just work really well with your skills and your instincts.
2: Well, that's been a journey because one i think when we first start writing we write by ourselves right and we're so full of heart we're so full of heart and every single song has to have meaning and be personal and it needs to be it's a really private thing and then you then you slowly learn to let go and write broader and uh more encompassing and when you're first trying to learn how to collaborate in the beginning when you're a struggling songwriter you're only writing with your own peers you're only Mm. i call us like all first graders or Mm. kindergartners you're only writing with your fellow first graders and sometimes you hit pay dirt nonetheless all of those songs you were talking about the the kim ritchie stuff i wrote with kim she was Mm. a brand new artist she was produced those were the first songs that frank liddell produced as a tape copy guy he got the budget to do his first songs with Kim, so those were my first like shimmering, gorgeous records. I mean, like that just blew my mind. Mm. And those records actually came out were recorded. The first Kim Ritchie stuff was recorded before uh, uh, George Dukas. Okay. So this was all happening in ninety three, ninety four. It just took that long to come out. And but I was writing with Kim, and then the Helen Darling song was with a guy named John Tiro. They were all my peers. You know, it wasn't until maybe a few years later, ninety six or so that I started getting to write with older, more established people, which I know is partially the goal. Mm-hmm. But it's also weird then, it's strange then because I, I see that you you naturally bow to them or you kowtow mm-hmm. more to them. You're trying very much to please them. You understand their 10 le- rungs up the ladder. And so you want to deliver. And so you really come in with, with a million ideas or you're really, like maybe you're you're, trying harder to impress a more established writer than your own peers. Mm. Your own peers are hanging out and you're smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey and writing at 10 o'clock at night. And sometimes you write something, but you're the next rung up. I mean, it get that's when it gets serious. You're showing up at 10 o'clock in the morning, 10 30 in the morning. I know the regular employed people are laughing at this, those, those <laughs> early norm- numbers. You're going to an office. You're really treating it like a job and you really want to impress the mm. elder statesman, you know? And I remember whaling with somebody, so fascinating because like he had been this I mean I'm not saying anything that's private but like he had been married and divorced several times and I thought that was just like such a grown-up crazy thing I was like wow I am in the thick of the music crazy people business now you know here we go and he was telling me funny stories about his ex-wives and how messy it all was and it, it was like one of my first experiences of like where I didn't feel like a young buck kid I really felt like hanging with the big dogs, <laughs> right. and, um, and I think that, that it was the, the, the elder statesmen were the, were the ones who really started talking to me about writing, you know, how do you write broad, how do you stay pure to you, how do you keep that light in your eyes that we're drawn to, how do you keep that, and how do you make us, how do you make us better writers by your youthful yeah. energy? And that was something I realized I could bring in, yeah. I could bring in, and that's something I really tried to harness. Um, And then fortunately or unfortunately during that time too, I've had a lot of heartache in my life and my mother was diagnosed with cancer and and she died in my late 20s. And that just afforded me even more to be raw and have my heart on my sleeve and go through Mm, and to have empathy and ache and be able to imagine all these things. So I think all these things, even though they were difficult, they informed my ability to continue to write no. in a number of different subjects and styles,
1: mm. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And then when I finally got... Now I'm the elder statesman, which is crazy. <laughs> so now I'm the one that the young bucks want to write with. And <laughs> and now, it's, now I feel like my job is to tell them... You know, Steve Seskin once said, when you first start, you're all heart. And then as you learn the craft, you become all craft. And then eventually... If you, be, if you can, in order to be a songwriter, your career, the heart and the craft both have to come mm. together, and then your heart with craft. Right. And that's what I hope I have, yeah. and that's what I'm telling everyone, too. That's great. You know.
1: Well, and it's sort of, I think, that that feeds itself sort of the, the cycle of you have new writers who come to town, and the older writers who have the craft down, they've got, you know, they know what to do with an idea. Yeah. But they're ready to hear some new ideas. They're ready to hear some new ideas, and you got people popping with ideas who need to learn that craft. So it's almost like this sort of mentorship thing feeds itself yeah. in a way. Yeah. yeah, that that's how that songwriting community. You're both borrowing.
2: Thrived. They're borrowing my expertise, and I'm borrowing their goofiness. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to jump totally out of sequence here uh, and go to a much more newly released track, which is uh, Rye and Angostura. Yeah which yeah. um, is a song that you co-wrote with your husband, Mark Selby, who passed away in September of 2017. Mm-hmm. And Mark, of course, figures into some of these other oh my songs. So I don't want to... So I'm, I'm jumping out of, out of chronology here. But he left behind this cool, stripped-down record called the, the Naked Sessions, which features that song and, and several others that you guys wrote together. Fifty-fifty guess. Ain't such a bad way to go Means for every high I get I gotta take me a alone And any space in between Any sweet stretch of peace Is some kind of miracle Um, I do think it'd be cool to just kind of stop and kind of talk about mark and about this record and you know how all of that sort of factors into the greater story
2: so basically the most important thing that happened to me in my life career-wise was in 1994 i did i met this tall drink of water named mark otis selby in nashville tennessee and he was like nothing i'd ever seen i'm an east coast girl an urbanite all this stuff and and private school and college and everything, and he was like a combine, working wheat harvest, mm. cowboy, mm. guitar, motorcycle. I didn't even know what to do with this dude. I mean, this right. guy was crazy. He was so cool. Right. And we just became great friends. He was truly like my brother. And we would go, we would go in and out of each other's lives for many years. And. I wanted so much to impress him, even though technically career-wise I was ahead of him, mm-hmm. um, because I had started so young, and and then we fell in love. We this tremendous collaboration of years and years of writing. Now he's I mean he's literally been in my life for half of his my life, and as his cancer progressed and he became sicker and sicker, um, our fabulous publisher. Diana Mayer, and they condensed Moss. They said, "Moss," and that's what I call Mark Selby, but because M O S is Mark <laughs> Odiselby. We we want you to do this record, and it became this incredible um, goal of his for the last year of his life, and it was this beautiful obsession because it was um, he would he was in chemotherapy. He was um, at the end. He was paralyzed on his entire left side of his body. He had a brain tumor, and and Ryan Angostura was the last song he was able to play before he lost the use of his hand and his voice sounds so, it was the last song we wrote together. It was a song. That was our favorite drink. Um, Ryan Angostura is a, is a Sazerac, essentially a New Orleans legendary drink. We loved New Orleans. We loved the big easy. We loved hiding out and strolling and, and I just, he was such a charismatic, enigmatic man and, and I remember that song, we had, we had gone down to New Orleans right when he started chemo um, three years ago. And it was like the last time it was really great. It was like our last great experience. Right. And while we were down there and we were having a, a Sazerac, it literally poured out of my mouth. Every other day it takes Ryan of bitters Just a little more Just another pour to help the dam stay dry. Jeez. And Moss went, Well, we gotta write that, don't we, baby? <laughs> and but we never did. And for some reason that melody and the whole thing, it just stayed in my head all the time. And sometimes Moss he would be like in the studio and just kind of twiddling, doodling, and he would play it. He nah. would play it, but it would never went past that. And it got to be um June of twenty seventeen. And uh He was sitting at the piano one day and he just started playing that little thing again. And I said, make us a Sazerac. Why don't you make us a Sazerac? Let's write this. And it just poured out of us. And what was amazing is the bridge goes, 50-50, I guess, ain't such a bad way to go. Means for every high I get, I got to take me low, And any space in between, and his sweet stretch of peace is some kind of miracle. And here we were dealing with the most horrible cancer. I mean, he had metastatic bone cancer. The pain mm. he was in, the, what they what they were doing to try to keep him alive. But we still had good days. Yeah, We still were able to find those little slivers of joy. And we were still able to write that song. And the, it just became like this... It was a miracle. It was a mi- The song was a miracle. Mm. The writing experience was a miracle. It was the best writing experience of my life. I think I knew this might be it, you know? Yeah. That was the window of him getting beyond sick, like beyond, like where nothing was going to work anymore. Yeah. And knowing it and that we could still write that music. And he sounds like a million bucks singing it. He sounds like a man who is not going quietly into the yeah. night. He was sounded like a man who was full of piss and vinegar and did not want to die. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's one of, one of the beautiful things. And, and I would say also one of the difficult things about even doing these interviews is knowing that you're going to dive deeply into people's mm-hmm. stories and their mm-hmm. lives. And sometimes that involves the, the very, very high points, mm-hmm. you know, like bullet points in a bio. And then there are these mm-hmm. incredibly heavy stories that are so, so meaningful and so poignant. And, The hardest part is to 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 ask the next question. Yeah, Um,
2: I can tell funny stories about him too, so don't (laughs) worry.
0: Um, But also to to keep moving um, to the next song. Yeah, Um, the next song on our list and your first number one Billboard country hit and the first number one for a group that would go on to have quite a few of them. Um, Of course, I'm talking about the Dixie Chicks and there's your trouble from 1998. Six won their first of a dozen Grammy Awards for their Mm -hmm. performance of that song and it really set the tone in a lot of ways for for their huge wave of success. Tell us about how that song was written and then what the experience was like to finally get that major commercial success as a writer.
2: Okay so I have to say two things that happened right at that time because we still argue about this I and I i am always going to talk about moss and present tense i go mm. back and forth between present and past constantly because it gets confusing but um <laughs> so he played the most amazing guitar he played the most amazing guitar on the planet he just was such a badass guitar player mm. and i am a crappy guitar player um but nonetheless i try and i'm always coming up with new ideas and i throw it out there and then he would make it better and so he was really good at the blues and I really wanted to learn how to play you know, write blues songs. So I was trying to impress him with with the blues and that is the reason the way that we first had our first charted success with a guy named Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Mm-hmm. It was a song called Deja Voodoo. And I think it went to like three mm-hmm. or four. And I got the idea for Deja Voodoo because I had to go to the dentist to get my teeth cleaned and checked out and they had an Economist magazine there and there in the Economist magazine I'm flipping through and there was an article about Bill Clinton and they said, is it voodoo economics or Deja Voodoo economics? Mm -hmm. And so I then go back and tell Moss and I have this blues idea and I ended up having this blues hit all because of Clinton economics, (laughs) right? And at this point Moss said to me, I remember him saying, whatever you're doing keep doing it to you because clearly you are just really great at coming up with great ideas so just keep observing things and 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 keep throwing them at me because you're you're doing it and so i already had that initiative from him and this is we're just friends at this point right and all day long um that we were writing there's your trouble we had had we were having a bunch of friends that was during the whole era of like those songs like um you're i'm trying to think of the like I can't even think of them now. There were these love songs like I swear by yeah. the moon and the stars and above and right. You're so wonderful, you're so fabulous. You know, like there was all those areas of songs. And so we had decided we were gonna try our publisher wanted to write us to write some of those, like okay. real love songs. And we just couldn't do it all day long, all day long. And finally I said I used to call him Selby too, and I said, Selby, just play something just totally ridiculous, like totally un you know, On power ballad, like just play something you would want to play, and he started playing what became the riff to "There's Your Trouble," and I had just been hearing this guy who used to always say "There's Trouble, There's Trouble," like you know, like when when the hot girl goes by, "Oh, There's Trouble," (laughs) and and the whole first verse of that song is like it should have been different, but it wasn't different. Was the same old story dear John so long well that whole thing is really writing about it should be easier to write a song it should be different to write a song this should be easier than it is but it's not that whole first verse was just really about how frustrating it was to write a song what's amazing is we then recorded that song and I think Moss had the harmonica on it and he had acoustic guitars and it sounded totally cool and and our publishers loved it and um but nothing happened to it. I mean, people cut it over and over again. And and Reba McIntyre cut it. And I'm trying to think other people that we were so excited about always fell through. And then they came and told us that three blonde girls from Texas were going to cut it. And I said, what's their name? And they said, Dixie Chicks. I'm like, that is the stupidest name. You cannot <laughs> you cannot steal, you know, a line from a classic song from Little Feet. You can't do that. <laughs> Dixie Chicken. And um, but they did and they were brilliant about it. And then it went on to become this crazy hit. And what happened was people immediately began, when we would play like a show, afterwards they'd be like, you're the cutest couple. When did you become a couple? We're like, we're not. (laughs) No, we're friends, you know. (laughs) And so everybody always thinks that we wrote that song about each other because it wasn't too soon after that, long after that, a year later, that we became the couple. But everybody thinks that. But we weren't. It was just truly (laughs) that we were... We wrote so many great songs. Why that became a landmark song, I don't know.
1: Huh. Yeah. But
2: it did. And the Dixie Chicks, you know, all of that changed our lives. They sold like 14 or 15 million records. Jeez. Right.
1: my right. gosh.
2: I mean, that never happens. Yeah.
1: Man. Here you've been in Nashville. You've been having, you know, moderate success. You've been doing good. You've been building a career. Now you have a number one song with the Dixie Chicks. How do you sort of navigate that suddenly everybody's like, Maybe people who didn't want to write before now suddenly want to write. Like, There's a whole political Well, the dimension. most interesting
2: thing that happened out of that is this one man who I had been um, badgering for years to write with me. And I would actually drop off cassettes because that's when we dropped off cassettes. Yeah. I would drop off cassettes at his um, offices every six months to beg him to write. Well, he finally loves the dixie chicks Hmm. and his name's mark d sanders who i (laughs) went on to write i hope you dance with so it was it was a seismic game changer and that i could write with anyone i wanted but but you know i think when you're in the middle of it even though you do have more people contacting you and you're definitely like wow i'm making progress right You know, or, or you're still so in the middle of it and you're you're at your heart you're just a creative person so in one way i didn't like it like Mm. i just want i I really just want to be left alone to write songs in my own head even so left to my own devices i would just sit in a room and play the guitar all day Mm. so the truth is it's actually good that all these people are coming out of the woodwork because it makes Mm -hmm. you get out of your comfort zone interesting i bet i think i hope i pray
1: yeah (laughs) um well, you mentioned Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and that's uh, the the fifth song we picked out in yeah. our Tia in Ten. I like that. Tia that's Tia. good, yeah. right? I like it's Tia clever. Yeah, um, but uh, Blue on Black, which was you know a, a big <laughs> hit for him in in nineteen ninety eight. <laughs> That you guys had collaborated with him on uh, Deja Voodoo previously mm-hmm. um, and went on to collaborate with him on, on quite a few songs but um, Blue on Black spent a total of six weeks at uh, number one on the mainstream rock chart and Billboard and it won a, a Billboard Music Award for Rock Track of the Year. Talk about how you initially like connected with uh, him. I mean, you know, he was like a teenager when, when yeah. he started out and, and Talk about how, how that sort of relationship began, but also in what way writing songs for a Kenny Wayne Shepherd kind of flexes a different muscle than writing commercial country music in Nashville.
2: Well, I mean, the first thing is what you just said there, that flexing the muscle, that's what I wanted. Like when Kenny came along, I'm like 24, 25 years old and I'm like, this is exactly what I wanted. I want to be such a broad songwriter that I can write guy songs, I can write bear songs, I can write white Johnny Cash songs, I can write I could, and nobody will know it's me. Like, I actually wanted, I was always begging my publishers, like, can I have a nom de plume? Can I have an alter ego? <laughs> so I can write any kind, yeah. I wanted to prove as much that I could write any song, yeah. as much, It was that was more important than, how much could I slip my skin, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, so Kenny's like 16 years old, he lives down in Shreveport, Louisiana, and his lawyer, and he's my, also, he was my publisher at the time, Tom Collins' lawyer too. And and so he kind of facilitated this thing, like, I need a wicked ass blues guy. Do you have a blues guy? And and Tom Collins said, Yes, this guy named Marco DeSelbi, I just signed him, right? And this is when I'm trying to convince Mark Otisilbi that I, too, Tia Silvers, 12 years of prep school and University of North Carolina can write the blues. <laughs> I got it deep in my veins. And, it's the um, Connecticut roots. It is. Yes. It says Connecticut it roots. It that and that's 12 minutes talking. in Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what did it. And for some reason, he was just new enough to town. Moss was just new enough to town. And we had been writing such great things that he said, you know what? You go do some research. Come back. Show me what you know so i went down the rabbit hole of blues i mean i was really trying to impress him and i learned all about muddy waters and blind william McTell and all these you know robert johnson i mean all these things i had never known about right and came back and i threw him like five or six ideas and then lo and behold when he went down to kenny wayne by himself just to meet him the first time he, he never would have dreamed they would hit it off but they did and then he kept going down there and then one time he says kenny i have this song i started with a person up in nashville and so that's what started our relationship even though i wasn't there in the room the first couple times and then so then cut to you know then then kenny starts being successful and he's touring and we're going to see him live and that's how we got to spend so much time in new orleans because when he got ready to make his second record we just camped out in the big easy for like two months Mm -hmm. and it was so amazing it was the most amazing writing experience ever
1: yeah wow
2: um And Blue on Black was, we were in the presidential suite at the Royal Sinesta Hotel, and there were like 60 amps in the room and 500 guitars, because at this point, everybody wanted to play everything, talk about you get more friends when you have success. (laughs) And they're all sitting around just messing with tone and everything. And I'm like, are we ever going to write a song? (laughs) And Kenny has a blue and black striped shirt on. This Mm. is why you need a woman in the room. (laughs) So I start going, is it blue yarn and black yarn? Or is it a blue shirt with black printed on it? Is it a black shirt with blue printed on it? And then it became a list of repeating metaphors. Because if it was blue on black, it wouldn't show up, right? Hmm. And so the whole chorus is blue on black, match on a fire, whisper on a scream, dead man's touch, cold on ice, tears in a river. These are all repeating metaphors. And I mean, that sounds really nerdy and wonky, but <laughs> that's what it is. Wow. And And what now, it's like blue on black is i think i don't i mean i sound like i'm bragging but it's sort of like the last great iconic rock song mm. and you can't go to a bar a bar band and not have them covered the- i mean i hear right. it all the time people send me videos all the time i'm at the beach check it out and people are saying somebody singing blue and black huh. it's like at every it's still on the um playlist of every waffle house i mean it's <laughs> like it's up there with sweet home alabama on the playlist right, you know right, right. that's that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow.
0: You, know. you, <laughs> That's cool. you, you talk about sort of you know that it's that it's nerdy or whatever that you know that sort of chain of of um, you know, metaphors, metaphors that you would yeah. yeah, but it's 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 almost like I was thinking of you know watching sometimes I'll watch old animation with my little girls, and I'll think about all the the painstaking detail it it comes that that, that it takes to make something look like yeah, no work it's, went it's into the, it at all.
2: The devil yeah. is in the details. Yeah. Heaven is in the details. The minutiae. It's like. Yes, we become great writers, we become great musicians, we become great songwriters, craftsmen from paying attention and collecting mm. words and thoughts and phrases and devices and go, I'd like to try that next. Yeah. I'd like to write a song backwards or chronologically. Yeah. Or what if I shifted and, you know, these all become games.
0: Well, a very tiny percentage of people who write songs can say they've actually written a hit. Yeah. A much smaller percentage of those can say they've written a standard. Yeah, um, But in 2000, you found yourself with a standard on your hands. I did. Uh, when Leanne Womack's recording of I Hope You Dance became a number one country hit, a top 15 pop hit, country song of the year as honored by the Grammys, the CMA, the ACM, BMI, ASCAP, FBI, ACLU, <laughs> yeah. anything yeah. with yeah. initials.
1: When you get the choice to sit it out or dance, I hope you dance. I hope you
0: dance. I'm, you've never made it out of a conversation or a writer's round or an interview without talking about this song, I'm sure. But, you know, for the millionth time, what was the inspiration behind that song and why do you think it resonated so strongly?
2: One of the most interesting things about getting to be me is that I have lost, um, I, I just lost my father last month, and so I'm now an orphan and a widow, and um, I can't believe how losing these people, these seminal people, have has affected me, and my, I lost my mother first, and I went, but... Before she died, and the year before, year and a half before she died, which I didn't know she was going to die. She wasn't sick yet. I um, went through a breakup and I drove down to Florida, to Apalachicola, Florida, to be by myself. And it was my first adult vacation completely by myself. It was the first time I went somewhere by myself. It was the first time that it kind of occurred to me that... I was good by myself and that I wanted to be better by myself. It was the first time it occurred to me that if I really was going to keep doing this thing as called a writer, I had to be comfortable with my brain and my head and my thoughts. I had to figure out how to harness it. I had to learn to not be distracted by other things that the true gold mine was mining my thoughts. That was my gold mine. and I had to be comfortable with being alone. And I was down there and um. There were three amazing things that happened. Um, one is my mom would call me up every day to mm-hmm. check on me. And my mom would go, this was after the Dixie Chicks, mind you, right? So she'd go, Mama Chick for Baby Chick. Mama Chick checking on Baby Chick. What you doing, sweetie? Chick, check, Chick, check." She'd always <laughs> do that, right? And then she would go in this litany like, I hope he rots in hell. I hope he never finds anybody as good as you. I hope he's miserable. I hope, mm-hmm. because I've just broken up with this guy. It was the wrong list of hopes, but she mm-hmm. was just... This giving me this wonderful <laughs> list of I hopes yep. the wrong ways, so that was one thing, and she was such a force of wonderfulness. She was such a empowering mom. She was so loving. And then I uh, was I went for walks every day, and I went on this incredibly long walk one day, and I'm by myself, and I'm just crying. I'm feeling incredibly inconsequential. I'm really feeling like the grain of sand that we all are. But you know how some days when you mm. really No, you're a fucking grain of sand you're like this is i maybe not even a grain of sand but you're and i'm looking at the ocean and i'm thinking i should just swim out there i should just swim out there and be shark bait because that would have more meaning than anything i could do i could feed some fishes (laughs) and this would be a hell of a life i've already had an amazing life and write them I'm on this beach, completely deserted, the tip of the island, and this big black SUV comes out and pulls out not very far from me and swings the door open, and the guy gets out, and he's got a suit on, and he has sunglasses. And in my mind, he forever looks like the guy, David, Blah, on CSI Miami, like oh, that yeah, guy, yeah. like that Caruso. guy. Yeah. Caruso, yeah, David Caruso. And he's on a cell phone, and he's like yelling in the cell phone, and he's cussing, and I whip around him, and I yell at him, but he's he's like 20 feet away i go you know what your problem is you don't feel small when you stand beside the ocean and you never will (laughs) and i whipped back around and the songwriter went and went oh that's it and Mm. immediately in my head immediately in my head i hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean Mm. and that's really what started it right there that little thing And then it began to tumble out of me, more things, more things. And then I'm driving home. I'm driving home from Apalachicola back to Nashville. And I get a call. And it's Diana Mayer, who we've already talked about. And she was the publisher of Moraine Music. And she calls me up and to ask me, she said, we just had a last minute cancellation at a writer's retreat. Would you come out? And instead of offending me that I had never been invited in the first place and why am I the last minute (laughs) fill in? It didn't occur to me. I just said, Yeah. Yeah, I will. I will. And so I said, when is it? She goes, can you get on a plane right now? I go, no, I can't. I'm driving back from Nashville, uh, from Apological. She goes, stop in Atlanta, buy a ticket. We'll reimburse you. Park your car. Come on out. I'm like, where are we going? And she says, the Rocky Mountains. And she goes, I'll send somebody to pick you up. I get on the plane. I fly to Denver. I don't have warm clothes. I don't have anything. And who picks me up at the airport but Mark Otis Selby. Wow. And the rest really is history. Because we fell so fast. It fell, It was like instantaneously, miraculously head over heels in love. Mm. And and he took me then. We went to Estes Park, and I saw the Rocky Mountains. And I was terrified of them. And it's the first time I ever saw mountains getting closer and closer and closer. And the first thing that flitted in my mind was, I hope you never fear those ma- mountains in the distance. Never settle for the past of least resistance. And I was just writing all these lines down. And on that trip... I wasn't there yet. I wasn't mentally there. And I don't even remember what I wrote on that trip. And I got back to Nashville. And my first writing appointment was with Mark Sanders. And at this point, I'm a hot mess because I've broken up with a boy I'm supposed to be crying over him I think I just met another boy oh my god how did this <laughs> happen and I'm confused and I'm sudden I'm invigorated and I don't know what my life holds for me and all I could think of is when I get the choice to sit it out or dance I hope I dance oh god please T I hope you dance mm. I hope I, it was more like my little prayer right my prayer mm. and um, so I had to be that crazy jumble of emotion and openness to whatever the world was bringing to me. Wow. I couldn't have written it. You know, I couldn't have.
1: Was that the first time you and Mark had written together?
2: No, we had written a bunch and we'd had a, a lot of cuts, but yeah. not, like, not like nothing that. like this. And he, for all of his career, I mean, all the hits he ever had, this was he, and he said this very cruel thing to me after like we won, like, I don't know, a Grammy or something. He said, Tia, I've already had a career. Now I have a career song. Wow. You have a career song. Now you have to have a career. And he was right, you know. Yeah. I was twenty-eight, almost twenty-nine when I wrote "Happy Dance." Yeah, you know, I was thirty when it. I'm thirty and thirty-one when I'm getting Grammys and, well, you geez. know, he was right. Yeah, he was right. Man, it, Ay, yeah, yeah. It's funny how you you Thanks, sort of smart D. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's funny how you sort of point to that, um, the notion of being a little unhinged at the moment you wrote it. Yeah, and and I've always thought that there's something there's something to that. Yeah. Um, because
2: just like I'm very unhinged now, I'm i I've been so unhinged for the past year. And I think I've written some of the most amazing songs of my life right now. Well, you know, listeners I are unhinged, understand myself. you know, yeah. um,
0: yeah. you're, you're singing to a, a, a flawed public and, yeah. and, and individuals that are blown about, you know, yeah. and, and you're catching them at that moment in the car. Yeah. Between, breakups and new relationships and and lost jobs and new opportunities yeah and and maybe that's something to be said for having your finger on that pulse by just having your life be you know blown about like it is. and what's
2: interesting about that because we've had a running joke about that forever is that i didn't i don't want to keep messing up my own life for the virtue of my own just to get a song so you (laughs) have to learn to live vicariously and and through other people but because also obviously life throws enough drama at you that you really can't control. So it's like, and mine seems to be for my life's burden instead of heartache is, is sickness and death. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to be my burden and how do I harness that tremendous loss and continue to get up in the morning and find joy and write about it with, with, you know, levity.
1: The next, song that we want to talk about is That'd Be Alright, which was yes. uh, a chart topper for Alan Jackson all in 2002. Right. that'd
2: be all-
1: song that you wrote with Martin d sanders as well as tim Tim nichols Nichols. so you've got you know two of the people here who wrote i hope you dance i I don't see any real similarities or connections between
2: although the the,
1: the sound of those songs in
2: a crazy way if money grew on hackberry trees if time wasn't such a luxury if love was lovesick over me that'd be all right right Mm -hmm. i mean in a crazy way it was this And that I love hackberry trees, and that's what started that whole idea. And um, and once again, I'm just a collector of weird words. If I could keep the tiger by the tail, half a bologna sandwich in my lunch pail, you (laughs) know. But I uh, gotta
1: say, just listening to that song, if I if I had just heard like "I Hope You Dance" and then I heard that song, and someone said the same person wrote. Both those songs, I go. Wait, really? Like on the surface, you know, and then throw in the Kenny Wayne Shepherd. You know, I mean, it's it's really like I think a. I have to slip my skin. I think you've done a great job of that. I think you've done what you've you've set out to do in a very credible way. I'm curious. Once you've written a career song, Mm -hmm. like I hope you dance. Mm -hmm if it's harder to be that chameleon that you want to be because other everybody people want to squeeze you into a certain mold. And
0: everybody wants to write, I hope you dance with you when they get together. I'm sure. Right.
2: If I had another dollar for every time my publisher would say to me, after I hope you dance great song, but no, I hope you dance like oh, <laughs> it, it is a talk <laughs> right. about Atlas, like the show, yeah. the weight of the world. Right. It's this beautiful, beautiful, heavy weight on your shoulder. Right. right. I, I wrote, I hope you dance. Yeah. But, but and I have written I have written at I would say about twelve songs, equal and or better, to I Hope You Dance since then. None of them had been hits. The timing wasn't right. I mean it's like who I mean yeah. it's you can't right. begrudge anything, it just wasn't right, you know. Yeah. But yes, oh absolutely. Everybody just looked at me. And once again, because I was the young buck, you know, they were all like, "and lit with my heart on my sleeve." Do it again, do it again, do it again.
1: (laughs) Right. And do the trick with the hope you dance thing. That thing, yeah. Yeah. And then
2: backwards and on stilts (laughs) and on fire and and, but the time was wrong. The other thing that happened is radio uh, radio had just been deregulated in 98 9-11 happened i mean radio was radically seismically shifting so quickly uh, immediately you know with by the time 2002 2003 came along the dixie chicks and the the toby keith debacle happened it became a much more aggressive sort of angry boot in your heel kind of era right, right. that i didn't quite fit in even though i managed to figure it out yeah you know it, it changed it was the rug the kinder gentler era was gone right. and it hmm. was gone pretty damn fast yeah. i mean really with the last beautiful kind song i think that was on the radio was where were you When the world stopped turning hmm. and yeah. that was you know about nine eleven. right so
1: yeah and then humble and kind is maybe turning as yes well, yes yeah. yeah. yes after a long <laughs> it was a long time <laughs> yeah. and that's yeah.
2: you know and also, too, radio is unrecognizable now. I mean, yeah. it's all owned by one or two people. Right. Very nice, big, powerful people. We, yeah. we like no, we, you. We love them. Yeah. Yeah, we love you. <laughs> right. but, so yeah. it's unrecognizable. The format of the way I would get played now or where yeah. I would go. Time yeah. Timing is everything. And all you can do is and you can call timing fate destiny god miracle what whatever it is whatever that is it's still it's either wrong or right at that Mm -hmm. moment you know you either win the lottery or you don't win the lottery that is that simple and all you can do is continue to try to do great work and be inspired and motivate yourself you can't you cannot be angry at at the rest of chance not Working with you yeah. Agreeing with you Because it's mm-hmm. bigger than you It's so much bigger than you
0: Well yeah If you're sitting around Being angry You're not ready For the yeah. next time That it might actually Line up Yeah you know? Um, you know Another song That we want to touch on Is A Joyful Noise Which oh, was wow. A hit for Jody Messina On the Adult Contemporary charts in late 2002 Of course That one is a holiday song Make a joy Typically, yes. Christmas songs get written because someone sets out to write a Christmas song. Yeah. Um, you don't often hear about, you know, Christmas songs just kind of randomly falling out of the sky, the same way other songs do. You know, we, we talked a bit about, you know, wow. you taking these walks and, and or hearing things that people say and how they land, you know. Um, I'm, I'm curious a bit on, on how this one came about and, and if it came about and saying, okay, we need to write a Christmas song today or whatever was set out. Do you like that type of? assignment writing or almost being commissioned to write a certain type of song or or do you much prefer to sort of let it land on you?
2: what year did you say this was uh
0: 2002
2: that's impossible (laughs) oh my gosh baby um when I talk say baby I'm talking to Moss um I cannot believe that um no I remember this super clearly um Brent Mayer was Moss's producer and our long-term friend and collaborator he was doing a Christmas album on Jody. Messina and um Diana Mayor put out an all points bulletin you know <laughs> peeps come on we have a chance we have a chance Christmas 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 and I had always rolled my eyes at trying to write a Christmas song because it seemed so calculated and it also seemed that the great ones already existed and so I remember saying okay okay I want to do this but I want to do no no reference to Christmas no re- reference to angels I want it to be this 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 epic lovely song about peace and hope and humanity without any of the traditional (laughs) touchstones how can we not do this so I went deep down the rabbit hole once again studied like all the the top 100 Christmas songs (laughs) and um and then started collecting all the possible words that I thought would be great and sentiments and everything and it's hopeful right Mm -hmm. and it's spiritual and it's seasonal yeah. but it can be any denomination it can be yeah. about a hope for the new year and it was yeah it was this beautiful surprise hit and it still it's played i mean it's one of the only new holiday songs that get yeah. played which is crazy once again i managed to be <laughs> the one new holiday song of the 21st century and um yeah and it's been covered multiple times now and it's it's a it was a great writing exercise because I, I managed to avoid every cliche, but still.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah to, it seems like maybe to to give yourself an added assignment on top of the assignment gave you the challenge that you yeah. needed, you know.
2: Yeah, and I love that challenge is something that does keep me really engaged. Yeah,
1: hmm. wow. Um, let's talk about Heaven, Heartache, and the Power of Love, which was a, a top 20 single for Trisha Yearwood in 2007. Um I mean, Trisha Yearwood is one of those sort of like modern-day iconic uh, country artists. And I'm always fascinated by sort of how it works in Nashville of how songs land where they do. I mean, you talk about, you hear like, oh, no, some act called the Dixie Chicks is cutting the song. That sounds cheesy, you know, like... But um, just talk about how that song kind of landed with Trisha and in a larger sense, how you have kind of observed that unfolding in your career of how songs kind of end up where they're supposed to, or maybe not supposed to sometimes.
2: Well, I'm just going to say this to all songwriters. Just become a Zen Buddhist right now. Just <laughs> become a Zen Buddhist. Just do it. do it. You don't even have to go to the temple. Just learn the, the basic tenet of Buddhism is I am control of nothing. I must open myself to everything. I must pour myself like a fountain. Here I am embracing the Zen Buddhism because, because you can't control anything. Every single song I've ever written that I thought was perfect for someone has never been the person I thought would record it. and every way that a song was recorded with the exception of the true insider ones that I was a part of had never been recorded the way I thought they were going to. They've always made decisions. It's all about letting, it's all about letting go. You have to be so willing to let go of the song once it's written. And I think that's one thing Diana Mayer, who's now my publisher, crazy full circle in life. Um, I have the hardest time turning them into her, because until I turn the songs in, they're just my little things. Nobody <laughs> rejects them. I love them. They're these tiny, perfect little things. And then the minute I turn them in, that begins my Zen experience of letting go. Mm-hmm. And so with Heaven Heartache, uh, I wrote that with the fabulous Clay Mills. I've written hun- hundreds so- of songs with Clay Mills. and. I don't know how we wrote that song. I actually barely have a memory of writing that song except that I know it was, we had fun writing it. I know I got the idea from a magazine stand in the checkout line at the grocery store because it was, it said something like, it it sounded like, like heartache and love and the power of both or something like that. (laughs) It was like the title on like an Esquire, I'm not, what are one of those trash magazines? Us, you know, us or something like that, yeah. and it has like a smiling woman who's made it through 12 divorces or something, whoever it is. <laughs> so, and I was like, Whoa, you know, and I think it was like, I think it was like, like heavenly heartache and, and love and l- loss, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, Whoa, what about heaven, heartache, and the power of love or something? And that's what so this was all it's from a magazine title. article.
1: One song from The Economist, another song from the trashy tabloid. You got the low bri, It's <laughs> yeah.
2: all low. high, yeah. low, educated, dregs. Sixth yeah, grade it's like the brain and the right brain. college yeah. reading level. <laughs> right. It's all the same.
0: Well, we've made it to our 10th song. Oh, my gosh. In the list. Um, and the last song on our list is Jonah, Job, and Moses.
2: <gasps> and me.
0: And, and
2: me. Jonah, Job, yeah. Moses, and me. And me, I'm just a struggling soul. I've been swallowed and consumed, and I pray to God for patience. Make me more like those three, help me survive my troubles. Let me join that band
0: of brothers, let it be Jonah Joe. song you wrote with the legendary Bill Anderson. Yes. Um, it was named Country Song of the Year at the Dove Awards, which for people that don't know is kind of the Christian music version of the Grammys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, by that point, you'd already conquered the country charts, the pop charts, <laughs> adult contemporary and rock charts. So yeah. why not just go ahead and cover all the bases yes. and, and have a Christian hit as well? Um, mm-hmm. Tell us the story of where that came from and the experience of working with a legend like Bill Anderson.
2: Well, I think, I think we need to go back. So let's look, let's look at the top ten these songs you've picked so far, Kate lipstick promises there's your trouble i hope you dance ryan angostura uh what make a joyful noise blue on black blue on black heaven heartache power of love and now we have jonah joe moses and me any of those titles like you were mine or (laughs) yeah or oh yeah my girl go girl no no, Right. right it's like I like to think of really calm if I, if the hook is not so I want to I always want to imagine what the hook looks like on the page mm. how interesting is that right and um, and I came in with with I had once when I get when I get high on something when I get obsessed with something I go down the rabbit hole mm. again and I got really in to the Old Testament for a while and I mm. was really studying these these men who shook their fist at God and were were lost and and you know in that chorus is you know make me like them those band of brothers make me as strong and strong and to, you know till i can rise above the heartaches of this life you know god make it let it be jonah job moses and me mm-hmm. and that's what yeah. this whole thing was about and i've shook my head, fit, fist at the wind when i could not rise above i have i have cursed your name i have i have questioned every my my path and my destination you know mm. but Please, please, please. If, if there's one thing in life, I'd like to be like it to be when I die. Jonah, Job, Moses, mm-hmm. and me. And when we got to the double wars, when we found out we were nominated, we were like, "This is crazy. This is so crazy." I, w- I would just get. I was back when I would get nominated for anything. It was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the list of the other songs, and and I said to Whisper and Bill, "We're gonna win." And he said, "Why?" And I go look at the other names, and the other names were like basically, "I believe," "Amen," "You are the light." My Lord, and then Jonah, Job, Moses, and me. I'm going, people are not, if they don't listen to all the five songs, they're going to just, the coolest name, <laughs> right. they're going to check it off, right. and that's going to make us win. And Whisper and Bill's like, no, no,
0: no.
2: <laughs> But it, I think that's what happened. Right.
0: I actually kind of have the same same approach to titles in that, you know, some of it has to do with, you know, you're, you're either sending songs into A&R or something, you, you want it to pop out. Yeah. But I also wonder if some of it comes from being, you know, writers that grew up in the album era, yeah. Where you know, and we and still also,
2: imagine how they look. Yeah, and and early on, yeah.
0: you know, you're not getting track one, two, and three. You're getting track seven and eight, nine on the record, and you're thinking, I I, th- I think about the way they look on the back of, a, of yeah. a CD. You flip it over and like, oh, I I think I'll actually advance to song number nine and hear yeah, what that I'm is that interests me. That is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where now in sort of like playlist era or single era, I I wonder if if that um impetus still remains. You know.
2: I still think that if you see suggested songs and yeah. you see a list, maybe you'll go, what's that mean? Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't make it an obsession of mine, but it's, you know, one of my little things that keep me engaged. Once yeah. again, these tricks, yeah. right? Yeah. How do I stay engaged? Well, sometimes you think of a crazy cool title. Yeah. yeah. A hook, yeah. and it just dictates, the rest of the song just spills out because how can you not write a song about Jonah, Job, Moses, and me? <laughs> well. You know, you can just imagine it.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great.
2: I've tried not to repeat myself, maybe to my own detriment. Maybe I could have had a more successful career. Matter of fact, yesterday, we're all sitting around the pool last night after all of our great meetings, and we were talking about how successful some songwriters have been. And I said, I wish I could have been more successful at harnessing and repeating myself. And immediately, everybody starts hitting me and just going, shut (laughs) up, you little whining. But... But I do wish I maybe, and I also wish I was a man, because I definitely think until very recently, it's just really still been a man's town. And mm. You just get more opportunities. You get invited to go on the road, all those things. I, and you don't make wives jealous when you're a man. Mm. <laughs> and not that I'm intending to make wives jealous, but you're spending all day long with men in rooms by themselves, and you share right. secrets. Yeah. But I can't be a man, and I don't have that other career. I have this one. Mm. And right now, it's like I'm you know closing in on 50 I'm a year and a half from that and I'm I'm a widow I my my life writing partner is gone and on my good days I feel like I'm 25 again Mm -hmm. I really do I feel like who knows Mm -hmm. and that's pretty damn exciting (laughs) you know yeah
1: wow well, Tia, this has been amazing.
2: Thank you. It's Thank been, you for- guys have got great questions. And Tia, at 10, I'm just loved yeah well
1: I, d- I think the lesson there is if you write 3,000 songs somebody will let you talk about 10 of them
2: yeah exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly I know here I was thinking this is a pretty comprehensive conversation I find that there's 2,990 songs yeah. we didn't join talk. us for
1: exactly. join us for our next episode where we yeah. talk about it. yeah t- and we'll talk 2, about the bottom song. two <laughs> t- bottom <laughs> thousand that are just terrible Talk right. it's about your 10 worst song yeah. um no but this is great thank, thank you for you so coming much. over and uh, and hanging with us today thank you Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member.
0: We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters.